Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Center, it sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issue of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Volume 122 of Broadway Bullet. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and this week is the New York City Fringe Special. Yes, we've got six shows playing at the New York City Fringe. Now, there's like well over 200 shows playing at the Fringe, so this is but a wee sample of what you can find. And you might want to head over to www.nycfringe.org to find out a lot more. On the show today, we've got uh, three musicals. We've got Williamsburg and Piaf, which gives us some in-studio performances from their shows. And we've also got music uh, on a demo from the musical Angela's Flying Bed. We've also got the plays Days and Nights, Stockholm, and Roxy Font. So we got a lot of stuff in this episode, so we don't have any time to waste. Let's hit it. On the boards. Up until now, all I've really cared to know about Williamsburg is it's way too hip for me, and in fact, I think it's about way too hip for anybody. It doesn't matter if you're hip enough, it's still way too hip for you. And I think that's the point that the writers were getting at when they put together Williamsburg the Musical, which is opening at the Fringe. We have the book writer, Will Brumley, and Allison Gwynn yeah, here with okay. us today. <laughs> how are you guys doing? Good, Good. how are you? How are you? <sighs> Keeping busy. So we got a kind of crew out there waiting to sing for a group number here and there. Yeah, we yeah. do. <laughs> we like to pack it in. We've got a big cast, 13 people, and a friend show. Yeah, that is. That's uh, it's huge. It is huge. So what's going on with the show? Tell us a little bit about the show here. The show is about um, a neurotic hipster who falls in love with a Hasidic Jew. Yeah. But there's also the counter story of what's going on in the Berg with the real estate sect. And there's an evil real estate agent named Amina Snatch. Is there any other kind of real estate agent? Uh, not in New York, no. Maybe not New York, <laughs> no. but uh, she she's slowly turning uh, hipsters into her zombie-like army of kind of conformists. And uh, the, the hipster, who's played by Allison, Hello. Piper Paris is her name, um, she and Shlomo Zildenberg must save the Berg from these... Zombies and from Amina. <laughs> That's what's best. I also just remember my business partner's in real estate. He's going to have a cow when he hears that. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you're wonderful. Sorry. So I understand there's kind of an interesting tale behind casting the Hasidic Jew in this. You wanted to get somebody real authentic. and We proved... did. Well, it was really important to try to uh, put someone in the show that was authentic. I mean, we didn't want to cast or depict anyone that, you know, didn't come across as that we were aware of the culture. Um, and so we went on that search to try to find somebody that, that was of the Hasidic faith. Um, and we had a, we had a huge um, open call. There were about 100 people 
um, at that, and then um, another day of auditions, and then we extended auditions, and um, finally we went with some. We didn't end up going with a Hasidic Jew, but um, we did have a lot of people that contacted us through the process, um, like Hasidic um, Rebel, who's a blogger. He emailed us and said, you know, I, I don't sing or anything, but um, just make sure you get, you get it right. So mm -hmm. that's been a big focus um, for us, getting it right, making sure that we're um, honestly portraying them. Um, I mean, it is a parody, but we don't want to, we're not making fun of them. Um, now, what were the challenges behind? I mean, there were some very specific things that made it kind of hard to, for you to actually cast a Hasidic Jew. Well, they can't listen to women sing. That would be a problem in a musical. I, I find that absolutely amazing, you know, all, all the different things that you find out that you just had no idea about. Right, right. I mean, I think there's sort of a... Um, the, the voice, hearing the voice implies a certain kind of sexuality. So um, somebody emailed us and they said, you know, I do sing. I'm really interested in this, but I went to your website and I see that there are women in the show. So I cannot audition. So that, that was kind of something we, we faced. But, um, and also, you, he sings rock. You know, it's a Hasidic yeah. Jew who sings rock and That's roll. That's really cool. Well, we got Mahis I think I want to meet that guy anyway. Yahoo or whatever. Right, exactly, rapper, so. exactly. Yeah. Um, well, Allison, before we go on, do you want to sing the first number here for us? Sure. Does this need to be set up at all? Um, Piper Paris just found out that her father cut her off from her trust fund because she's uh, 30 years old. It's her birthday. It's her 30th birthday. And uh, the gift they give her is... Um, no more financial backing. <laughs> so she's a little bit suicidal. Um, and very neurotic. And very neurotic. And she really wants to eat at Peter Luger's. Yes. She which did. she has a reservation for, but now cannot pay for. <laughs> and who's playing guitar? Kurt Gellerstedt, the composer. All right, let's take a listen. Getting cut off just kills. It's my parents' big thrill. But they brought me into this world so they should pay the bill. Now my credit card's maxed and my iPod was hacked and I'm down to my very last cigarette pack. I'm alone, I'm alone, I'm so starved I can't breathe like a teary-eyed maiden on old cobble streets. It's my third I'm homeless and craving beef. Peter Luger, your heavenly billboards of light. I smell that sweet meat walking into the night. Oh, Daddy, I'm getting the urge for a slab of prime. Am I out of my mind? Oh, my hard, hard luck. Have Satan incarnate for a father Well then who do you believe But my friends are all out Hanging on the north side Another chain smoking Pill popping, cap hopping Kind of night Now my stomach is spinning My blood sugar's low I'm a bitch when I'm hungry It's out of control Oh Juicy and crispy 
saw the casting call for on backstage and thought it was amazing and I'm like oh I have to I just have to go out for this and it, it was right on it was hilarious and I, I'm just so proud to be a part of it it's really funny I'm, I'm really excited how much time do you spend in Williamsburg um not a lot because it's too cool for me <laughs> <laughs> and it's really sad when you reach a point where you have to admit I'm too poor to be a hipster uh, and that's very true. So, um, yeah, <laughs> what is this world coming to when you can't afford to be bohemian? But uh, I, I lived there But that's there what for makes while. it hilarious. So I, I spend a lot of time there with my collaborators because uh, you're not being dismissive enough towards me for whatever. I'm cool. <laughs> whatever, man. So, so what are the, some of the top things that you like to skewer about Williamsburg? <laughs> the, the fashion is just amazing. And um, see, I'm from the South where most of the stuff that they buy for $150 or a 25 cents at a yard sale. So <laughs> it's, it's really fun to, to explore this kind of, um, this kind of uh, culture, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> yeah, and Will? What, what was the question? <laughs> what, what are <laughs> some of the favorite things care. you like to skewer about <laughs> Williamsburg? Well, I mean, the whole real estate thing was a big part yeah. of it, which which we talked a little bit about. And, um, it's you know, there's a lot of things popping up all what over the place What have rates jumped there. to in Williamsburg? Uh, Just a few I years don't, ago. I mean, was... who even knows? I mean, originally, you know, you could go walk down the street and... Just a few years ago, they were paying you to go live in apartments. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, they would have the, the build, like, not the, the bulletin board set up where you would go and pull, you know, numbers off to, to find a, a rental. And it used to be cool because you could walk down the street and like, oh, I'm looking for an apartment. Oh, here's a bunch. And now it's you walk into this really hip real estate office, and if you want to buy, you know, a multi-million dollar condo, that's possible. And suddenly, people's parents are, are buying those, and the uh, working class culture, well, uh, corporate culture, has moved out there, and it's just it's a different thing because mm -hmm. the, the whole community was based on a working class. You know, it was built up by the working class. And now there's been a lot of issues because some of those people have been kicked out um, or are struggling to keep their rent-controlled spaces or whatever. So that's, that's a big part of the show as well. Um, and we're trying to do that in, in a comedic way, but it's also a very serious thing for, for the Puerto Rican culture and some of the Polish community that uh, funnels over into Greenpoint. Um, there's, there's real issues there. So um, we really wanted to address that and, and in turn also... You know, kind of exploit the the whole. Hipster Aren't the garage set. sales now all of a sudden like getting IPOs though? <laughs> <laughs> the whole the whole street's a garage sale. Yeah. You walk down the street, you could get anything you want if it's from like 1980, 70. Some you know, it's like all the vintage weird LPs you could ever wish for are out on the street and. Just weird chocolate. I almost bought, bought like an olive green toaster when you we did. Were, I was there the other day. Almost very vintage. Yeah. Very. But it was Olive like forty five dollars or something. <laughs> no. And why? And why? Why pay for yeah. that? Well, should we bring in the group to sing the next number? Definitely. So, do you guys want to set this up for them? What 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 do people need to know? Remember, a lot of our listeners don't know the L train. So. 
Well, the L train, um, there's, there's a stop in the L train, which is the first one into Brooklyn called Bedford Avenue. And that's where the frenzy of activity is uh, happening. It's the hot, hot, cultural mm-hmm. hotspot, right? Yes. And um, so the song is called One Stop to Excitement, which means there's one stop to the city. And there's also one stop to Bedford. It takes, it, it should take about five minutes to get there. It but should. sometimes it really doesn't because the train will just stop. In the, middle. in the middle of the tunnel. Under the river. <laughs> Under the river, the dirty East River. Yes, so um, they're, they're singing about um, that process. Jesse Teeters. Jessica Crouch. Adam Enright. Damian Smith. Miranda Barsky. From Williamsburg the Musical. Ladies and gentlemen, the next Manhattan-bound L train will depart in three minutes. Under the river, the dirty East River, we run direct to the epicenter. Bars and clubs and ATMs, paper stores and vintage gems. Stay a while on Manhattan Isle, come and go in super style. Union Square, six minutes door to door, say no more. La 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 la, we take the L train, la la la. Sardine train. One stop, one stop to adventure. One stop, one stop to everything. Here on the platform fashion show, who's wearing who, who wants to know? Skinny girls rock the shabby chic, bright pink sneaks and army teeks. Please don't crush my Excuse me, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. La 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 la, we take the L train. La 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 la, we take the L train. La 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 la, we take the L train. One stop, one stop to excitement. One stop, one stop to everything. Crowded till the end of time. One stop, one stop to adventure. One stop. One stop to Attention passengers, we have a red signal up ahead. We will be moving shortly. One stop, one stop to excitement. One stop, one stop to everything. Getting off! One stop, one stop to adventure. One stop, one stop to everything. Okay, so how long has Williamsburg been in development for you? It's been short. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it started as a joke. Um, I, I was working on another show with um, my collaborators, uh, Kurt Gellerstedt and Brooke Fox. Um, we've been working for about five years on another project that's almost finished, but they live in Williamsburg, and I used to live there um, around 2000, 2001. So I'm always over there, and we're walking around while we're collaborating, and we're always you know, coming up with funny little tidbits and songs, and we kept writing them down and laughing about them, and then... You know, the fringe deadline was approaching, so we thought, you know, this is really topical, it's pretty hot, maybe we should just put it out there and see what happens, and then the acceptance came, and we said, oh, we've really got to get our <laughs> shit in gear and write this thing, right. and so um, that's what the process has been, putting this together for, for the Fringe Festival. 
Right, so how can people get tickets? Where do they go? When is it? All that great stuff. The show dates are August 11th, 12th, 13th, 19th, and 24th. It's uh, playing at the Village Theater. Um, if you go to uh, fringenyc.org um, and look under the show titles, you can look up Williamsburg the Musical and click on it. They have a hyperlink that takes you to TicketWeb, and you can purchase your tickets that way. There's also Fringe Central, which is down on Carmine and Varick. And um, you can buy your tickets directly from them at the box office. Is there a way to text your way in? Because isn't that what all the Williamsburg people want to do now? Just text Maybe, <laughs> on your phone? You can text me and I can Five try to see what I can do. <laughs> yeah, where's the iPhone? Yeah. <laughs> all right, well, thanks so much for stopping down and best of luck with the show. Thank you, Thank Michael. You. On the boards. Well, Warner Brothers and Universal have been fighting over the rights, but in the end, Mark Stewart Weitz got the rights to combine the hotly contested Anne Frank's Diary and the Seagull for the Fringe. <laughs> How you doing? Good, good. Now that, that's what Days and Nights is, isn't it? It's right up front on the on the press release. It's you're combining Diary of Anne Frank and the Seagull. That's right. That's right. In a nutshell, it is the story of. The seagull combined with the story of Anne Frank and Heidegger. How many different ways can we rephrase this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, every time I tell people, you know. Like, really? I, I, yeah. I mean, I just get stunned looks. So I've tried to uh, simplify and simplify and simplify. But really, um, it has to be seen, I think, too. They're, uh, to they're just all picturing a German girl flapping a bird around a room. <laughs> no, that's not too far from, from the truth. Yeah, no. Um, they're actually, the plays are um, very similar thematically, I think. And... Um, in terms of the the subjects that they address and um, the uh, the problems that people face, I mean, they're both about. Um, see, and there I am at a loss for words again. They're <laughs> uh, they're both about. Well, for me, I guess the way I first conceived of the piece is they're both about confinement. It just happens that the seagull is about being uh, sort of internally confined, psychologically confined. You know, uh, unable to actually get what you want or see what you want or something like that. And uh, but the, the thing is with Anne Frank is she knows what she wants, but she can't physically get out of the attic. So it's the, uh, but they both want the same thing. And that's the most amazing part of it. Um, they both want love. They both want happiness. They both want to not be bored. <laughs> um, but uh, it's when you combine the two opposite circumstances, that's when uh, sort of the sparks fly. <laughs> And these also have their, you know, origins in foreign language. So my, I'm curious, did you go to the originals uh, for inspiration or did you go to translations? Uh, yes, I'm fluent in Russian and German <laughs> <laughs> and also six other languages. Uh, no, no, I, I went to translations. Um, no, we're not using any of the actual text from the diary. So um, that uh, in terms of performing that, uh, we didn't have to worry about the translation. But uh, for the Seagull, I've been using about um, six or seven different translations. And that's just been exciting in and of itself to see how the different translations um, are, uh, you know, how the different translations affect which line resonates to me as something that might work in the context of the world of Anne Frank. I stayed away, actually, from uh, more modern translations because... Um, you know, they say that every generation has to translate the classics for for themselves uh, because the lingo changes, you know, the, the idioms change and all that stuff. So um, I actually wound up using a lot of translations that were from... The shizzles forever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah <right>. um, <laughs> yes, where's the Scoop Dog translation <laughs> of the seagull? Exactly. Um, so, right. Uh, they, they said something like... Um, 
there was some comment about being in therapy or something like that. And I thought, you know, the fact that they didn't really talk about being in therapy, that wasn't what they were on. So I used a lot of translations that were more from like the 50s uh, or, the, or the 60s. And I actually found, I guess it must be a public domain translation because it's, it's, um, it's, it seems like it's the oldest sort of, perhaps it's the first English translation of it. So, and that's been wonderful in terms of finding language that actually resonates with, uh, with that world. And it's also just been strange. I mean, I've always understood one of the most famous first lines of, of literature to be, why do you always wear black? And then the response is, I'm in mourning for my life. And uh, just going through these translations, uh, it actually, I guess, was more commonly originally translated as, why do you wear mourning? I wear black because I'm unhappy. So just the reversal of those words um, has been fascinating in this whole process to go through that. I just got to let our listeners know on the side that I, I, it appears I need to fix our squeaky stool. He, Mark's not having more fun in the booth than he appears to be. <laughs> um, oh, you caught me. Sorry. Uh, I mean, I'm having a good time, but uh, but maybe not that good. I'll try to sit still. <laughs> That's right. So how, how do you combine the two stories? How do you do this? And, and, well, and, um, and also what... You mentioned that you think thematically it was you, you, that you see the similarities, but what what got you onto the idea of wanting to do it in the first place? Um, well, it, it started as a workshop and uh, uh, with the City Company actually, with Anne Bogart and City Company, and um, the workshop was examining the seagull. And uh, I thought about you know I love the play, and the thing about the play is that it, it it's meant different things to me as I've gotten older. I used to identify with the with Treplev, who's the young guy, you know, and as I get older, I start to identify with the older characters, which I think is one thing that makes the play so great, is there's something in it for every, for everybody whenever you come to it as an adult. Um, and this time through, what really struck me was the internal confinement of it. And I thought, how can I explore that? And one of the ways to explore that is to juxtapose it with its exact opposite. So I thought, okay, what, what's the opposite of being internally, uh, internally confined? And I thought about um, prison. That was sort of the first uh, thing that came to mind. But uh, for a variety of reasons, I ruled that out. And then I have a lot of experience sort of with this story of Anne Frank. I've uh, strangely been sort of dealing with that as a piece of art for a while in terms of other productions of it or um, and actually acting in it and stuff. So, um, so there it was sort of in the back of my mind and uh, to, to, you know, that that's a sort of an an extreme metaphor for confinement, trapped in an attic for two years. And uh, so I said, okay, that's an interesting idea, but I got to go read the diary. I, mean, I got to make sure this works. And when I read the diary with the seagull in mind, it's ridiculous. <laughs> These other words, it's, it's for shizzle. Um, how, uh, it's redonkulous. It's redon <laughs> you know, ginormous is now in the dictionary, just to prove that word. It's ginormous, the number of uh, similarities. Uh, and um, I think I, I've been joking around that actually for my next project, I'm going to tell the diary of Anne Frank using only words from, I'm going to tell the seagull using only words from the diary of Anne Frank. <laughs> I'm just going to flip it. But the way we've been assembling the text is, um, well, it's been a number of ways. I mean, we're telling the physical life of the attic. So to figure out what the physical life of that story is, we've been using a lot of uh, improvisational movement exercises to figure out how do you convey living in an attic for two years physically. Um, and then out of that, uh, certain lines, they just naturally suggest themselves. I mean, um, you know, if you're sitting around having dinner uh, in the attic, then you might want to find lines that re reference dinner. Uh, and that's the amazing thing about the seagull is that there seems to be, it, it encompasses all of life. So if you need a dinner sequence, it's there. If you need a fight, it's there. If you need a love scene, it's there. And it's really sort of a diary format in a sense. I mean, the seagull just follows the moment-to-moment -moment lives of these people. 
which is just what the diary does, is it follows the moment-to-moment -moment lives of these people. And it's almost like a, like a Surratt painting. You know, you see all these dots, and there's no real story there. But when you step back, all the dots come together. And uh, I think that's why the two plays work together so well, because they're really just about the, the dots of our lives and uh, how they don't necessarily seem meaningful at the time. But in the larger picture, they're incredibly meaningful. They're, they're um, you know, as Chekhov said, he said, uh, you know, people are just sitting there eating dinner, nothing more than eating dinner. And uh, meanwhile, their happiness is being created and lives are being smashed up. And that's, um, I think, an incredibly powerful metaphor for what, you know, Anne Frank and certainly other Jews in Germany were going through. You know, they were just living their lives and all these forces were swirling outside their control and stuff like that. So you come at this this year as your second time in the Fringe. Yes, so, uh, <laughs> my, my sophomore outing. So was uh, was everybody going your nuts? <laughs> no. Well, how how about how better prepared do you feel after coming back from the first time? Um, at this, both much better prepared and also a little <laughs> a little more overwhelmed. Um, the first show last year was uh, you know it was more of I mean it was a very unconventional play but it was sort of traditionally unconventional. This is. Uh, much more conventionally, traditionally conventional. <laughs> That's right. This is more uh, traditionally <laughs> unconventional. <laughs> this feels very fringy to me. You know, this is um, this is I think is in the heart of the mission statement for the Fringe Festival. You know, <laughs> new, weird, exciting, crazy ideas that um, aren't necessarily you know commercial. I mean, I would love to tour with this piece. I think this would be something that I could you know. Actually, it's been accepted to. Um, the equivalent of the Caracas Venezuelan Fringe Festival, essentially, in December. So I, I do think that this is something that other cultures and other countries that understand this idea We're going to be doing find. a whole special on the Caracas Venezuelan <laughs> That's the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's a hot place to go. Um, it's on the equator, so it's actually very hot. <laughs> um, but um, uh, so this is very, it's very fringy, and um, it was, it's great to have the experience from last year to bring to that experience this year. At the same time, it's been very different because of the challenges of an evolving script and um, not knowing exactly what all the tech is going to look like beforehand. You know, the production meetings have been have been uh, <laughs> fun and crazy trying to figure it all out. So, um, but I think, as I say, that it's it's the right thing for the Fringe because it's a chance to take this new work and show it to people and get feedback and get them excited about it. And um, do something that isn't sort of typically seen in New York City. You know, um, it's not, and I can't think. Insert revival here. <laughs> <You know. laughs> so, so where is it playing? When's it running? All that great stuff. Um, it's playing at the Lafayette Street Theater, uh, forty-five Bleecker Street downstairs. Uh, it's the old Culture Project, uh, forty-five below, and. Uh, the dates are, now let's see, I, I had to memorize this. We can just get the first and the ending and then they can sure. find the... <laughs> right. The uh, oh, the yes. Website. The website is www.annfranksegal.com. Anne with an E, franksegal.com. And um, so it, it opens August 10th and it closes August 24th and there are five performances. And uh, the website has all the information uh, for tickets and stuff like that. And you can also go to fringenyc.org and just search for us under Days and Nights, page 121, lines 11 and 12. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Mark, and best of luck. Thank you very much. The Call Board. I'd like to remind everybody, if you are looking to buy, sell, or rent an apartment or house in New York City, my business partner uh, will definitely take care of you if you call him and say you're from Broadway Bullet. So call David Shapiro at 646-920-3402. 
not all real estate people are bad yet. Dave's a good guy. Also, if you're looking to record anything, I do a lot of recording here in my Times Square studio. Now, these songs that put on the show, we do these typically in about a half hour total. So if I can make these sound uh, this good in a half hour, hopefully you can imagine that I could uh, make you sound even better with a little more time. My rates are reasonable, so give me a buzz, 646-345-3433 if you're interested in recording. I don't just do musical theater. I also do pop, rock, and R&B as well. And uh, vocal coaching and recording is my speciality. Also, vocal arrangements. All right, let's get into the news on the call board. This Saturday, so you got to act quick, August 4th, Playwrights Horizons will host an off-Broadway sidewalk sale. More information on all of these items, be sure to check out our show notes page at broadwaybullet.com, volume 122. On Sunday, August 5th, previous guests from the cast of the Off-Broadway Musical Sessions will perform a special post-show benefit concert. They'll be performing from 6 to 8 p.m. at Therapy. And this is going to benefit Camp Happy Time. Also, the Public Theater's production of A Midsummer Night's Dream begins performances at the Delacorte Theater on August 7th as the second half of this summer Shakespeare in the Park run. In addition to announcing five more shows, the New York Musical Theater Festival has just announced that tickets for the 2007 festival are now on sale and that bookings are currently open for those who purchased NYMPH membership. Single tickets are $20 and will go on sale to the general public on September 1st. The festival is a three-week-long celebration of new musicals featuring the works of new generation of musical theater writers. Yep, and we're going to be there covering all of it in three episodes starting. And we got a contest. Uh, you can win a gold package, which includes a pair of tickets to four shows of your choice, plus you get to register and reserve tickets early for other shows. So it's a great package. Uh, worth a bit of money here, so it's maybe worth doing a little digging. Okay, here's the deal. I've got some trivia questions for you. I'm going to give you the questions this week. I'm going to give you the answers, but not the questions, next week. And uh, everybody who gets it right is going to go to a pool. I'm going to draw one. Now, um, I'm curious to see if anybody gets the answers to these hard, hard questions before I even give the answers. Uh, I might have to beg Nim for something extra if you can do that. So get to researching. These questions are <laughs> tough. What current Broadway male lead appeared simultaneously in two shows in Nymph 2005? That was question number one. Question number two is what Nymph alumnus choreographer currently appears as a judge choreographer on So You Think You Can Dance? Bonus round, what did he or she choreograph at Nymph? Question three, who played the title role in Caligula in Nymph 2005? Question four, what headwear did Executive Director Chris Stewart Don at the very first Nymph Gala fundraiser. Number five, what is the name of the Nymph office dog? Hmm. And six, what Nymph show has in various forms been performed in all three festivals thus far? Okay. You might be stumped, but I think you can find some of these with a little research. And as I said, next week we will give you the answers, but not the questions. And uh, I'll tell you how you can win. So be sure to check in, because it's a, it's a great deal for those of you into new musicals. All right, moving on, we got a couple more announcements for the call board, and that is uh, Broadway and Bryant Park next week will feature performances from Spring Awakening, The Color Purple, The Fantastics, and Wicked. The concert will take place at 1230 on Thursday, August 9th. And in cast change news, former NSYNC member Lance Bass will join the cast of Hairspray as Corny Collins on August 14th. Original Rent stars Adam Pascal and Anthony Rapp have returned to their respective roles and will remain with the show for a six-week run through September 9th. 
Also, we've got two more winners. We gave away two pairs of tickets for the People versus Mona uh, to we, you know, you don't get these notices unless you're registered on the Broadway Bullet website. So if you're wondering why, go hit and register. If you are registered and aren't getting these, make sure info at broadwaybullet.com is not in your spam list. But the winners for a pair of tickets is Eve Ribnick and Doug Marino. Each one a pair, and they'll be going to see People vs. Mona on Thursday night. I hope they enjoy it. I certainly did. On the boards. Piaf, Love Conquers All, is opening at the New York City Fringe Festival, and playing the titular role is Naomi Emerson, and she is here along with another actor and the accompanist, Stephanie Layton. How are you guys doing? Hi, Michael. We're going to perform a couple songs from the show for us in a minute, but first, let's chat a little bit about Piaf. And sure. I'm going to say probably the first thing, and okay. I'm, I'm going to, I should be embarrassed about this, but... <gasps> oh. I, I'm going to uh, swallow that embarrassment for the sake of listeners who are probably in the same boat and okay. say, who the hell is Pia? <laughs> who is she? Why do we care? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, she was a... Uh, f- okay, she's like the French Elvis. So what Elvis is to rock and roll in North America, Piaf is to the French people and to she a lot swung of her people. hips. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and she had really long sideburns on the side of her cheeks. Um, she, you know, she was the the ultimate French singer in um, Paris during the '30s, '40s, '50s, and just the beginning of the '60s. So she had a really long career. But yeah, it's France, though. And it's France. She. <laughs> Internationally, she made a huge hit here in in uh, New York, and she's like she's the music of of the the poor, heartbroken, downtrodden, um, poor. Uh, you know, she sings songs about um, wives killing their husbands and um, killing themselves, that kind of stuff. Happy music, and um, she came right at the end of the this whole chanson realiste era, which was... Well, well, what era? Chanson realiste. The realist singers, I guess. And so they they sung about everyday real things as opposed to, oh, everything's so syrupy and lovely and beautiful. And so when Pierre first came to New York, actually, um, New York kind of hated her, didn't know what to make of her, until, until there was one... Uh, Journalist who said, if New York lets Piaf go, then they will admit to their ignorance. So it's the same kind of thing with this show. If you don't come to see our show at the Fringe, <laughs> then you are admitting your ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> now, what got you interested in Edith Piaf? Um, 1993. This is more than just a role for you, as I understand. It's not yeah. like you just uh, auditioned and, and got into something. You're like, oh, cool, whatever. Right, right, right. <laughs> It's true. Well, back in 1993, it was kind of, I didn't really have to audition, but the guy who wrote it, Roger Peace, he, I was doing another show of his, and um, he asked me to do this show to fill a spot that we were already doing at this other theater, anyway. And I was pretty young. I was like, uh, a whole show? Just me? Two hours? Me talking and singing? And in French? And, um, but I said yes. So, and then 10 or 11 years later, <laughs> as I was twiddling my thumbs... No, I never do that. Um, uh, I decided to, I really wanted to get into directing, designing, producing, getting more into to actually creating something than just being the talking head in a show and everybody else making the decisions. So because I'd already done the show, I thought, this is kind of probably a good feature and a good way of 
having control over everything. So I mounted it at the Fringe in 2005 in Toronto, Canada. And then it got picked up uh, by a couple of theaters, and then I sort of pitched it to a bunch of other theaters, and then we did a tour, and it got um, good reviews and stuff in Canada. And I got to design it. And I wouldn't mind having a director, though. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we go on, why don't we play the first song for this? And uh, Stephanie, I understand you just uh, literally picked up an accordion like a week and a half ago for this. Yes, I did. Um... I am a pianist, but when I heard about this audition, I thought, oh, French music needs an accordion, so I'm going to do that, too. And so I borrowed one from a friend, and I actually just got one on eBay, so this is my <laughs> debut. And she's amazing. Listen up. It's so amazing. <laughs> okay, I want to get 50 bucks from eBay for that. Okay, <laughs> let's go. Let's hear the, what's the set up the song here. Uh, we listening to Sous le ciel de Paris first, and... Um, Oh, it's just one of those beautiful love songs of Paris explaining all the good and horrible things about it. Sous le ciel de Paris envole une chanson Elle est née d'aujourd'hui dans le cœur d'un garçon Sous le ciel de Paris marchent les amoureux Leur bonheur se construit sur une air fait pour eux Sous le pont de Bercy Un philosophe assis De musiciens, quelques badauds Puis des gens par Sous le ciel de Paris Jusqu'au soir enchanté L'hymne d'un peuple est pris Dans cette vieille cité Près de Notre-Dame Parfois pour un drame Oui mais à Paname Tout peut s'arranger Quelques rayons du ciel d'été, l'accordéon de marinier, l'espoir fleurit au ciel de Paris. Sous le ciel de Paris coule le fleuve joyeux. Mmh. Il endort dans la nuit des clochards et légumes. Sous le ciel de Paris Des oiseaux du bon Dieu oh, Viennent du monde entier Pour bavarder entre eux Mais le ciel de Paris A son secret pour lui Depuis vingt siècles Il était pris dans notre île Saint-Louis elle lui sourit et met son habit bleu oh, Quand il pleut sur Paris, c'est qu'il est malheureux Quand il est trop jaloux de ses millions d'amants oh, Il fait gronder sur eux son tonnerre éclatant 
Mais le ciel de Paris n'est pas longtemps cruel Pour se faire pardonner Il offre un I definitely have heard this song. So is this Piaf that I've heard, or is this like a general kind of the French canon hmm. that I've heard? Uh, that's a good question. I, I don't really know who, what other artists have recorded it, but I bet there are some. Yeah. So you've heard of that one? You've yeah, heard that one? Yeah, definitely. See, so this is the thing. Like, there's tons of Piaf songs that you don't necessarily know it's Piaf. Like, I mean, La Vie en Rose. The, we didn't do that today, because, or we're not going to do that today, because it's just, everybody seems to know that one. So I want to kind of introduce, oh, yeah, remember that song that she sang? Remember that song that she sang? And so there's some really obscure ones, which aren't in my show. Except for Les Blues Blanches, which is a crazy song that she only recorded once. And um, it's, it's a kooky, kooky song. About, about about going kooky and about being in an insane asylum and yeah, so that's a good one. But that's not what we're gonna. That's hear. not what we're gonna hear. <laughs> Do you have to cut of the show? <laughs> Before we get to the next song, Stephanie, I'm curious because yeah. on the sheet here it lists you as actor, not just okay. the company. So what what do you do with the show? Um, well, I am a quick change artist because I play I think five different uh, small roles in the show, but um. When I'm not uh, in the scene, I'm usually playing the piano or the accordion, so it sounds like uh, I'll be pretty busy. Yeah. <laughs> she, they basically, the rules are all different people who are important in Piaf's life. So there's Marlena Dietrich, and um, uh, well, Piaf's first love, Louis Dupont, and of course, Louis Le Play, who discovered her on the street and put her in her first real club, well, cabaret gig. Uh, yeah. So she gets to play a lot of men. I get to <laughs> some men, some I women, definitely... some instruments. She's so pretty. So thank you. She'll play, she'll play a pretty man, but she's really tall. It. So I'm glad about that because it'll make me look smaller. Because Piaf was only four foot ten, but I'm five two. So mm. yeah, five eight. Well, why don't you tell us about this next song you're going to perform here? Oh, Padam Padam! It's just my all-time favorite. I don't know. It's um. It tells the story of a tune in your head that you can't get out of your head, and it reminds you of so many false, uh, failed loves and the things that you failed at in your life. And this tune, every time you hear it, it just goes padam, padam in your head, padam, padam, over and over again, until finally it just throws you on the street and shoots you down. <laughs> it's yeah, that's what tragic. It's about. <laughs> Is this umba? For France? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, it absolutely. Cet air qui m'obsède jour et nuit, cet air n'est pas né d'aujourd'hui. Il vient d'aussi loin que je viens, traîné par cent mille musiciens. Un jour, cet air me rendra folle. Sans voix, j'ai voulu dire. Mais il m'a coupé la parole Il parle toujours avant moi Et sa voix couvre ma voix Padam, padam, padam 
Il arrive en courant derrière moi Padam, padam, padam Il me fait le coup du souviens-toi Padam, padam, padam C'est un air qui me montre du doigt Et je traîne après moi comme une drôle d'erreur Sur l'air qui s'est au par cœur Il dit rappelle-toi tes amours Rappelle-toi puisque c'est ton tour Y'a pas de raison pour tu ne pleures pas Avec tes souvenirs sous les bras Et moi je revois ce qui reste Ma vingt enfants battre tambour Je vois s'entrebattre des gestes Toute la comédie des amours Sur cette terre qui va toujours Padam, padam, padam Dès je t'aime de 14 juillet Padam, padam, padam Dès toujours qu'on achète au revers Padam, padam, padam Des vêtus en voilà par paquet Et tout ça pour tomber juste au coin de la rue Sur l'air qui m'a reconnu Écoutez le chahut qui me fait Comme si tout mon passé Qui bat comme un cœur de bois. Okay, so now we need all the details of how people can catch. Piaf, Love Conquers All. Yeah, so is many. That, is it such a dominant title. Is this yeah, like Schwarzenegger and guns? <laughs> love guns and Transformers too. Love Conquers Guns and Transformers Robots. Exactly. It's true. Uh, well, because she did believe that it, love, through having love and being loved, it would conquer any of her awful addictions to morphine and her terrible childhood that she had. Anyway, so uh, obviously the Fringe NYC has a great website and that's how you can either book your tickets with um, credit cards, I guess. You can't book them on my website, which is lvrproductions.com but you can get uh, linked there to thefringenyc.org and then buy tickets that way. What and it's dates? in August, yeah. August uh, 10th to the 26th. We have five shows over those three weeks only. And um, they run anywhere from August 11th and then the 19th, I think, is one of our last ones. Mm -hmm. so, I understand you're thinking about taking the show other places, too. Is there going to yeah, be other people have, who are going to get a chance to catch you doing this? Yeah, we have some interest in bookings in uh, California, actually. And then um, we're uh, continually, you know, looking for other people who would like to present this show in other places, for sure. Well, I thank the two of you so much for coming down and sharing all your knowledge about Edith Piaf. I'm, I'm playing a little ignorance, but I didn't know much about her until I met you a few weeks ago. Yeah, and it and, seems uh, like a lot more people are going to know a lot about her this summer because of the movie. 
and then because of our play. So I think uh, she's kind of out there all of a sudden again, which is great because I don't. It's not an official anniversary of anything right now. She died in '63, so and she was born in 1915. We're just <laughs> between birthdays, <laughs> between celebrations. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming down here in Broadway Bullet, and it was great. Look forward thanks. to the show. Thank you. Thank you. On the boards. Stockholm syndrome is when captives tend to identify with their captors, and. Uh, Maybe many teenagers feel like in their feel like that in their family, and I believe that's somewhat of the themes going on in the new play at the Fringe, Stock Home, written by Alex Goldberg, and we have Alex here in the studio along with Megan Tusing and Lauren Cook. How are you guys doing? Great. Hi. Very good. Yes, I'm Alex Goldberg, and I'm the uh, playwright. I'm Lauren Cook, and I play Tammy. And I'm Megan Tusing, and I play Kaylee. All right, so first off, Alex, uh, let us know a little bit what, what's the show about, and feel free to chime in, everybody. Well, the show is about a young couple who live in a small town, Conrad and Tammy, and uh, they decide, well, Tammy decides for them that she wants to start a family, and so, um, you know, they think about it, and then that's when Kaylee enters the picture, without giving away too much. <laughs> that's, that's how it works, so they become a, a three-person family, and it's a three-person play, so... Now, you've been a bit of a festival nut this summer, haven't you, Alex? I, I have. It's been a crazy couple of months. My other play, uh, I'm in Love With Your Wife, is currently going on in the Midtown Theater Festival. It'll close uh, beginning of August. And it's been going well. We've uh, sold out every show, and the festival has added on an additional performance for us, which is great. So we're thrilled to be doing it. And it's great to you know go back and forth between two plays uh, as a writer. It's, it's very rewarding and a lot of fun. When you're this much of a slut, do the festivals respect you in the morning? <laughs> they don't. You know, I tried to keep my other life a secret, and, uh, you know, it gets out, and then it gets awkward. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, some of, one of the festivals isn't speaking to me right now. And I'm not going to say who it is, but, uh, you know, I'll buy him some flowers later and, and a beer. So, uh, Megan and Lord, what, what is the most fun part uh, about the show to you guys as actors? <laughs> Fun. Or, or interesting. <laughs> or torturous. I don't know what's... No, no. I, I didn't mean to um, to lead you to believe that it's not fun. And it's it's just dark. Um, but I like I like the kind of bizarre quality. I mean, we're, this is really some people who are living in a... Uh, th their their way of looking at the world is slightly different than one might expect. And so when you come to see the show, you can expect a lot of surprises. Um, I, I like the shock value. That would be the, the answer to that question. Um, I like the challenge of having to figure out how someone significantly younger than me handles the situation that she's in, and also seeing how this group of people who are really unfamiliar with each other somehow become this... Um, bizarre as you said family and somehow it works out but sort of doesn't but it's but it's interesting to explore how has the rehearsal process been working with the director and such um I pr i've had a really good time um seth is very thorough in what he does and he's very respectful of how actors you know feel and what they need to get where they need to be and um he's also good at helping us dissect where where we are in a certain section of the play and how to bring most life to it that we can. And to uh, add on to that, there are some very uh, uh, difficult moments in the show, and uh, everyone seems to be working well together and very close, so they're able to rehearse the uh, the weight of some moments in the moment, and then as soon as it's over, are able to go back and, you know, 
be normal people with each other, which I think makes it a lot easier when we get to those uncomfortable times. What is it you most enjoy about playwriting? You know, it's, it's, it seems more and more people are fleeing to Hollywood. You're staying here in New York and working, got two shows going on. Yeah. What, what draws you to? You know, I, I spend a lot of time doing a lot of improv, and for me that translates well into playwriting. And if I have the idea of a story, and then just letting the characters talk in my head, it becomes, you know, I, just the conversations happen, and they happen easily. So that's the joy of being able to sit there alone and create the art without having to worry about a budget or what actors you're going to cast or anything like that. You can put it all up in your mind, and it's there. And then you get to, you know, experience it again when you put it through the uh, rehearsal process. But you know, that first moments are, are great. And of course, as a writer, you do it after you do everything else. You, you know, your apartment has to be clean and, you know, everything has to be done because you don't want to write. But then you do, and it just happens. Do you it's have great. a routine, a, a ritual to your writing? Uh, yes. I've, I've cleaned. I've answered all the emails that I do. I've probably called relatives that I haven't spoken with in years. <laughs> uh, you know, if there's any... So you know, procrastinate. Procrastinate, yeah. If I, can, <laughs> if, you know, if I can donate my time to charity, I'll do that. You know, anything that I can do. And then I'll sit down and write, and then the hours will fly by, and I wonder why I didn't start earlier. Now, looking at your bios, it seems that the three of you all have a pretty heavy background in comedy. Uh, so what's, what's the shift like for you, as you say, going to this dark material? Well, it's been really nice to um, sort of exercise a different muscle, I would say. But at the same time, Alex has done a great job of of incorporating some humor into this relatively serious material. Um, and, you know, we'll be we'll be going through some of the heaviest scenes, for sure. And we'll all crack up laughing, because there's just kind of that perfect one-liner that, um, it's black comedy, but it's, it's, the, it's very, very smart. And what is going to be the biggest challenge in uh, swinging this up in 15 minutes on a fringe stage? Um, you know, there's a lot of challenges to doing that. We actually had a great meeting with our uh, set designer, Martin Andrew, last night. And he, uh, you know, as a good set designer will do, will come to us with a wonderful, uh, ambitious set that really feeds the play well. And then he realizes it's boxes. Yes. Yeah, and it's like, this is great. At 15 minutes, how you know, we can do one part of that. So, you know, he quickly changed gears and, you know, he was able to conform his idea into something else where the basic gist of it remains the same, but we can do it in 15 minutes. That and, you know, having a couple of uh, talented stage managers and assistant stage managers helps. <laughs> and faith. A little prayer. <laughs> no pun intended. So no have, pun intended. So have you any of you seen any of the shows going up in the current festivals? Any favorites you're looking forward to? Uh, I am looking forward to Williamsburg the Musical. Uh, that uh, um, just appeals to me immensely, and uh, if it's as funny as it sounds, then it's going to be great. Is that because they're waiting right outside the door to do a segment? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I have no idea what that is, but they might be able to beat me up, so I want to put in a, a nice word for them. So what are the dates and everything about the show? Where can they go to get tickets? When is it? Ah, well, the festival starts on uh, August 10th, and our first show is on August 10th, so this is a good reminder to my actors sitting on either side of me that it's very close. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's funny, but it's time true. To, uh, but So we open August time 10th. Time to get off book, right? Right, yeah. hopefully. <laughs> but uh, you can find out more information on both of uh, my plays this summer at uh, www.changitosproductions.com, which is C-H-A-N-G-U-I-T-O-S 
Productions.com. That's not great for a five-second elevator pitch. It's not. <laughs> it's not. Especially if I have to, you know, load in and load out in 15 minutes. Do you think I could pitch it in two seconds? But I can't. <laughs> well, I thank you guys for coming in. I wish you the best of luck with your production in the Fringe. And also congratulations on the success of your other show with the Midtown International Theater Festival. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. When are you doing Nymph? <laughs> I'm working on it. On the boards. The Fringe is for all types of shows, even children's musicals. And one of those is Angela's Flying Bed, and we have the composer uh, and lyric author Dave Hall here with us today. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. It's good to be here. First off, I guess, tell us a little bit about the show, Angela's Flying Bed. Angela is an overscheduled little girl whose parents keep moving her from bigger house to yet bigger house to yet better neighborhood. And after a little while, she just rebels and refuses to get out of bed. They call in a doctor who suggests a new bed. And this new, this well, it's not so new, this creaky, old-fashioned, terribly uncomfortable bed comes in, and she re- and she decides to she'll still sleep in that bed. And what happens is she presses a button on the bed that she was forbidden to touch and goes off on this wild adventure where she meets, um, along with her bed, who's a character in the show, she meets... Uh, a bunch of wacky characters such as the selfish shellfish, Javier, Kate, and Edith, um, the awful pretty, pretty awful birds, and finally Humphrey, the humpless camel, who sort of gives her a little life lesson that she's able to take back to her folks. <laughs> now, there's actually children in the show as well, correct? Yes, actually, we've got two young uh, newcomers, um, Maya Greenberg, who happens to be the daughter of my collaborator, the, the book writer Carl Greenberg, but she had to audition. <laughs> and a little guy named Luke Marcus, who's from the uh, professional children's school, who plays Humphrey. Now, what is it like finding children? Because even in professional productions, um, I, I just saw a production... I'm not going to say what it is, but I was kind of aghast at the quality on on Broadway of of, of a child actor. And it seems like, at any level, it seems like hit, hit or miss finding a really good child. Yeah, it, it was tricky. We saw a number of little girls, and Maya seemed to have the raw talent, and she was the right age, and she has the right character for the for the part, but she's somewhat um, she's somewhat unschooled. She just did a production of The King and I up in Massachusetts and has been to theater camp, so she's kind of got the goods. They're developing. So, um, so yeah, it was tricky. There were a number of kids that sort of came by that were too old and, and a little too slick. Yeah, I know. You know, know what I mean? Easy. I know um, exactly. Whereas Luke hasn't actually done a lot of theater. He's a scholarship piano student at the professional school, but has been doing voiceovers and, and other theater pieces, and he's just a natural. He's really good. He's got a really good voice. He's got a big number to sing, and he handles it great, and, and he's you know good at reading the parts. So we feel pretty lucky. And we've got some great adult actors, too, to work with the kids. Great. Well, before we go on, you brought in a demo that you uh, that you recorded. Did you want to set up this song? This is the opening number, uh, Is It My House slash The Clock Song, which takes place at the very beginning of the show when the family has just been moved into yet another house. It's really quite confusing whenever we are using yet another brand new postal code. In a brand new different space, a brand new different place, and quite another brand new different road. But is it my house? Can I? 
process been like putting the show together for the fringe it's been kind of uh crazy as as people predicted it would be um the fringe people actually have been great very organized very accessible um but i've never produced before so you know we lost a costume designer at a really late date and had to quick find somebody else and there's all kinds of paperwork i've never filled out anything for equity before so there are pages and pages and pages of this stuff at the same time we're working on rewrites and fixes in the script and everything so i think in the future i'll either produce or write it's a little (laughs) tricky doing it all so uh what concessions have you made for the 15-minute setup? Well, we have virtually no set. We're building a bed that has to move, and we're getting as many light cues as we can in our two-hour tech. <laughs> and it's a very costume-oriented show. There's some wild characters. We've got llamas. We've got camels. We've got big parrot-like birds. We've got three clams. Um, so we're just differentiating scenes and uh, characters by costumes. It's a very costume-heavy show. All right. Well, we got another song from your demo. Do you want to set this one up really quick? The n- next song is when it's, it's called Again, and little Angela sings it as her parents waltz out the door to their jobs, and she's left home all alone on this terribly uncomfortable bed. There they go. Thank you. 
Well, I, I always think one of the best ways to get children involved and interested in theater is to is to take them to theater, and and a lot of times they can be a lot more interested when they see their peers on the stage. So, um, I'm glad to mention this as well as all the other offerings at the Fringe. Do you want to give everybody the times, dates, information, how they can catch the show? Absolutely. Um, the Fringe Festival opens August 10th and ends August 26th, and we've got five performances between those two dates. Opening night at f August 10th at 5 p.m., uh, August 15th at 5.45, August 19th at 3.15, August 23rd at 8 p.m., and August 26th, the closing day of the festival, at 2.30 p.m. And if, and if folks go to fringenyc.com, you'll be able to find listings of the shows and direct links to uh, the site where you can purchase tickets. All right, Dave. And again, you want to name your other collaborators from the project? Yes. Uh, my co-writer is uh, Carl Greenberg, uh, whose wife, uh, Lydia Gaston, is uh, is appearing as the mom in the show, and she's also the choreographer. And we're directed by Chris Clavelli. All right. Well, thank you so much, and best of luck with the festival, Dave. Uh, thanks so much. Appreciate it. On the boards. Ah, the name Roxy is a popular one in dramatic literature. <laughs> and we have the playwright, Liza Lentini, here with us, who has her play, Roxy Font, at the Fringe. And how is everything going? Everything is going great. I'm happy to report. <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit. What is Roxy Font about? Uh, Roxy Font is a story about a young woman who sets out on this international journey to find her lost love and inadvertently becomes a world-famous prostitute who kills her Johns. Okay. Um. <laughs> I should also mention that uh, she has a parasitic twin, so that sort of adds to her mystique. So what was the inspiration behind this as a writer? Well, um, I'm actually from a freak show family. Um, I have a very... Okay, now we got something to talk about here. All right. <laughs> it's true. I have a very... You can look him up on the internet. His name's Franklin Like a real freak show family or like my family freak well, show family? Every family's a freak show family. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually know his very famous freak name, Frank Lentini. He was a three-legged man, uh, literally and figuratively. He had a third leg, which is actually... He had a parasitic triplet. He had a, his, his twin had a leg coming out of his hip which he would kick balls with or do all these things. And he, was, he traveled with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. He was a very famous freak. You'll see him in all these books. Now, every time you see a freak book, you'll be able to see him in it. So, uh, yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I, I wanted for years to write a, a play about him, and that never really happened. And um, I don't know. I guess, I guess Roxy was just sort of born out of, out of that need to write something about... Uh, about a freak, but also the play itself is really a love story. So it's about how, how freakish people can be when they're in love. So what made you want to put this on with The Fringe? Uh, it's a perfect Fringe show. <laughs> it is, it's completely offbeat. It's incredibly fun. It's, we're calling it an adult's fable. So it's very PG-13. Um, nothing I, I couldn't invite my parents to, but... Uh, just incredibly fun. It's a little. It's a little sexy. It also has obviously some kind of semi-adult content. <laughs> Although you know, it's sort of in a in a children's theater presented in sort of a children's theater kind of way. So, what have been the biggest challenges with getting the show mounted and, and put together as you get ready for the fringe? 
Oh, hmm. Geez, you know, I don't think we have time for me to really (laughs) go into get into all of it. But uh, what are the challenges? Um, Let's see. Well, we were very limited with our time and our resources. And um, I don't know if most fringe shows end up being sort of high budget shows, but ours is ours isn't um, you know super high. And so we're making do with what we have all around. (laughs) <laughs> but so, we have a great, I should mention that the production team and Crazy Town Productions and everybody is so awesome. They're really fun and really together and really, really smart. So uh, how did you go about deciding who you wanted to direct the show? Well, um, our director is Catherine Kovner. She's, um, she's amazing. She, uh, she's a very smart young director. She had, she's the artistic director of a company called The Playwrights Realm. And she really respects playwrights' work and knows how to um, respect the playwright and, and bring out the best in the work. Now, you came from Brown University, correct? Catherine? Catherine did. Oh, I Catherine. Didn't. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, yeah. I saw that wrong. And <laughs> where, okay. where, did you, where did you go, and, and how did you get into playwriting in general? Uh, well, I did my undergrad at Wheaton College in Massachusetts, which is actually about 15 minutes north of Brown, although um, a little bit older than Catherine, so I wouldn't have known her then. But uh, how I got into playwriting, actually, I, I had a play... At ACTF, which is so weird to say that now that I've um, been out of college for so long, but uh, and uh, it was a, it was actually um, uh, Paula Vogel was our whatever you want to call it. Uh, she sort of did the reviews, or she was our adjudicator, or whatever. And she was really really encouraging. This was a, a million and a half years ago. I won't even tell you when, but she actually approached me and she said, "I would love it if you would study with me." And at the time, I was sort of racing through school. I finished I finished um, college in my third year. And then ended up working at the Huntington Theater after that and, and got my MFA at Southern Illinois University. And came here um, working for the Theater Development Fund. But I've always written plays ever since I was about 12. And I'm always kind of curious with playwrights these days. How much of your energy you spend on playwriting and, and do you also spend a lot of energy on like screenwriting, film writing, TV? I do all different kinds of writing. I'm actually uh, written for magazines. I'm writing for a science magazine right now. Um, I optioned screenplay last year. Um, I write all the time. So playwriting's my first love. Really so, my only love. So do you have a, a crazy ritual with your writing? Uh, <laughs> well, like most writers, I, I also have to make a living. So um, ritual, <laughs> <My> ritual. <laughs> the ritual would be um, write when you can, as much as you can when you have the time. And I do. That's exactly what I'll do. I'm running on the subway. I'm running really, really late at night, really early in the morning, whenever I can do it, all the time. I've written... I don't know. I probably have um, about 40 full-length plays, and that's not counting one-act, you know, short plays. I have so much work, and some of it, quite frankly, is so horrible. But it, I just keep going. I just keep writing and hoping that, you know, something will, something will. Um, I was a songwriter. I, I would say, kind of, sometimes you have to write the bad ones to get to the good ones. I think you do. I, I think it's just about figuring out your own process, figuring out what works, and just being a, being willing to be bad. Because if you're not willing to be bad, you're not going to be really very good either. Right? I mean, you, can, you know, if you're sitting there just feeling so self-conscious about what's, what's coming out, it's, it's not going to be your best ever. All right. So uh, when can people catch Roxy Font? Roxy Font. Uh, well, with the Fringe, it obviously has really um, uh, weird times, but it's funny. the beginning of the end, and we can like, direct <laughs> people to the website for all the filler. Well, it's at the, the Cherry Lane, um, and it opens on August 17th through the 25th, and the Times... Um, 
the 17th at 5.15, the 18th at 2.30. Should I keep going? <laughs> what, what website can we go to check out to find out where to go get tickets? That, well, it'll probably be at the NYC Fringe. Yeah, know. and we have a MySpace page, too. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll try to get that MySpace link up on our, our web page. Okay, that'd be great. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Liza. Thank you so much. Best of luck with your run. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Top of the trades. The 2004 off-Broadway hit Bear will receive a full studio recording later this year. Bear is a musical comedy drama about romantic relationships and emotional growth amongst a group of students at St. Cecilia's Boarding School. It premiered in Los Angeles in 2000 and gained a substantial cult following during its short New York City run. Hmm. A musical called Bear in New York. I wonder how it got a cult following. The previously planned revival of Pal Joey, which was supposed to star Jersey Boys Tony winner Christian Hoff, has been postponed. Producer Mark Platt says the timing was not right, but that a revival will hopefully happen as soon as possible. When next produced on Broadway, Pal Joey will feature a revised book by Tony winner Richard Greenberg. Because nothing's more trendy than a revised book. Forbidden Broadway returns in September with an all-new edition entitled Rude Awakening, which will feature spoofs of shows including Spring Awakening, Grey Gardens, Legally Blonde, Curtains, Grease, Frost Nixon, Mary Poppins, the recent revival of Company, and more. Since it's opening in September, my guess is that is when creator Gerard Alessandrini is going to go into hiding for a couple of months. <laughs> Tony winner Brian Stokes Mitchell will make his Carnegie Hall solo concert debut, hard to believe, huh, on October 15th, 2007. The concert will include selections from Mitchell's various musical theater roles as well as contemporary music. Special guests will include Reba McIntyre and Felicia Rashad. Proceeds from the concert will benefit the Actors Fund. For those fans of Brian Stokes Mitchell outside of New York City, apparently it is Brian Stokes Mitchell's goal to play every single theater in the world anywhere, so you will get a chance to see him. For your weekly dose of theater news, check out Top of the Trades every week here on Broadway Bullet. Top of the Trades is sponsored by BroadwayWorld.com, always your best source for theater news and community. Curtain Call. Right now I'd like to welcome our newest intern, Maria Sermonia, to the crew. Uh, She's already working hard and a great addition. And uh, her and a bunch of people got a treat of meeting uh, Stephanie J. Block, who we interviewed this morning. And she is going to be on next week's episode. You're also going to hear selections from the Pirate Queen soundtrack and a boy from Oz. So uh, you got that to look forward to. And Stephanie does indeed dish out a lot of great insider information. Also, coming up next week, we have the next installment of Broadway Abridged Live. What show is it going to be? Tune in. Well, thanks for joining us for the Fringe episode. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and until next week, thanks for hopping aboard the Broadway Bullet. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. The Broadway Bullet! It's a thrilling moment. We're starved, so shouldn't audition come up? We are so ready and raring. So, Jake Kowski says my name, and I'm in the can. <laughs> Actually, the Barfay thing comes from my whole life. People just going vulture, boggler. So it didn't take much, though, when proposed. Um, yeah. Unpackage those things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So. 
a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc., to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.